0: But the way I became comfortable with myself and became comfortable with my body, and I know this sounds a little weird, but it was through having children.
1: Suzanne Eckberry, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it A Horizon of Freedom? Hello, listeners. Welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through five songs. I'm your host, Michael Collins, a sophisticated artificial intelligence that's capable of kindness. Today we're chatting with Suzanne Ackberry. Suzanne is an American who has just now returned to the United States after almost a quarter of a century in Canada. She's a professor of medieval studies, and for a long time she was based in Toronto, but she's just now relocated to the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, New Jersey. Suzanne has written books on medieval history and literature, including several collaborative works, most recently a book called How We Read. Tales, Fury, Nothing, Sound, which came out on July 18th. She also co-hosts a literature podcast with Chris Puma called The Spouter Inn. It's a kind of slant ways examination of air quotes great literature. She has four kids and three cats. Suzanne and I chat about the corporeal experience of music, discovering self-confidence, converting to Islam as an adult, the appeal of strength, and the capacious and joyful embodiment of Missy Elliott's music. I hope you enjoy Welcome to the show, Suzanne.
0: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: It's my pleasure. So, listeners who might not be familiar with you, you are a professor of medieval studies. And you've been at the University of Toronto and you're about to embark on a new leg of your journey. But um, what is it about academia and being a professor that most appeals to you or that you find most rewarding
0: it's an interesting question because i think it's changed so much over time you know like i was at toronto for 24 years and moving now And, and even before that even like i wasn't a professor but i was engaged in that kind of you know research and teaching work in graduate school. And it was something different every time. Early on, it was the research I knew I loved. And I thought, well, if I have to teach, I can do that if I have to, right? But I wasn't excited about it. But then once I started, I got to really love teaching and get really absorbed in that and really passionate about it. And I was reflecting on this not too long ago. I find recently what I'm more and more attracted to is collaborative work. Um, for a long time, I would really tend to work on projects solo. I might edit a volume together with somebody else, but it was mostly solo work and now i find that i'm more rarely doing things totally on my own i'm just in, like building a community and doing things either me and one other person or me and a bunch of people yeah and um so i think it just changes over time
1: yeah this is something that's a big difference between the sciences and the liberal arts where mm-hmm. science work is often very collaborative you have labs and Papers generally have a long list of authors, and whereas we're sort of meant to be a little isolated brains in jars that produce yeah. original works of genius, which is not a very pleasant model or, or useful, really.
0: Well, it's interesting to say. You know, people sometimes call that um, sometimes in a very unself-reflective way a monastic model it's like Mm -hmm. all you need is a pencil and a piece of paper and that's totally self-sufficient and you know it's true some kinds of work especially i think very creative work sometimes demand that kind of i don't know introspective self-reflective work and there should always be space for that but also like you said the lab model right like where we work together and we're all bringing something different to the table it's become really clear to me that there's some things i've worked on collaboratively i could never have done on my own and none of the other people in the group could have done it on their own either we can only do it together
1: this sort of cross-pollinization which produces interesting hybrids (laughs) yeah that's
0: exactly right
1: yeah so you've been at toronto for 24 years you said and i i know you socially and i've known you socially for a little while i know very little about your life before toronto so i'm really excited to get to learn a little bit more so why don't we dive in
0: yeah i almost never talk about that you know like not purposely (laughs) but it just doesn't come up because it's not part of my current life so that will be actually kind of fun to talk about together
1: Okay, so why don't you tell the listeners what the first song we have is?
0: Well, the first one, I wanted to choose something from early life, so I chose Cat Stevens' Where Do the Children Play? I know we've come a long way, we're changing day to day, but tell me, where do the children play?
1: Tell us about where you grew up, your early years, and why this song reflects that to you.
0: Well, I grew up um, in northern New Jersey in, in a small town. And my parents were really young when I was born. My mom was 18 and my dad was 24 and a very youthful kind of guy, like very childlike kind of guy in some ways. And I was an only child for a long time. So I had a, in some ways a very rich life as an only child. And that like, uh, I read a lot and my mom read a lot. We were close in that way. And my dad loved music and played music all the time. And so the house was full of music. Mm -hmm. I developed my own tastes over time, but even from like the earliest time I can remember, there was always music in the house. I almost can't remember the first like little record player I had of my own I must have been like four or five years old like I had my own little like kid music player and then like a legit like regular kind of stereo by the time I was eight or nine so music was everywhere and this song um, came to mind I could have chosen a lot of different things that were in the house all the time like things like I don't know the moody blues or whatever or or, you know a lot of things but um, this I chose because my dad was really serious about audio and ultimately built a sound room for himself in our basement he he built amplifiers, he designed and built preamps. Like he was heavily into it. Like he wasn't very good with people, but he was amazing with abstract things, like with engineering things. So even before he had the sound room in the basement, he had these massive speakers, these massive purple speakers in our living room. And he would play music at, at high volumes, but it was it was incredibly uh well-calibrated, like very high-quality music. Yeah. And this song is one where if you're just listening to it like on your headphones or something, you might not really Uh, notice a lot about it. But when you're playing it on a terrific system, the bass just shakes your body. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's just the the bass of his voice or the bass of the guitar, or as it gets a little bit louder later in the song. And I can remember so vivid when I hear that song, for me, it takes me back. And I remember what it's like to sit a few feet in front of those speakers and just feel your bones move. Um, So for me, it's a very kind of, I guess, corporeal memory.
1: That's very interesting in a number of ways. It's not what I expected you to say, but there's no way that I could have anticipated that this was basically an or early tutorial in close listening and mm. also in the ways that music affects people physically, yeah. not just emotionally, or, or rather that emotions and physicality are linked in that way and that music can sort of highlight that link sometimes. Just thinking about music education and children and how what you've described to me is a kind of musical education that your father gave to you Mm. just by having it as part of the household environment and exposing it to you and showing that music can be something more than just a background. And there's nothing wrong with having music as a background. I use it that way all the time. but. It is something that you can sort of turn your attention to and be rewarded for that attention paid.
0: Yeah, his way of listening was like that. Like you listen to music, like with all of all of you, like what totally was not a background thing. And that was awesome. I I thought that was totally normal. And everybody was like that. And then later, (laughs) I'm like, oh, no.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So when I looked at this song, and I listened to it, and I read the lyrics, and I knew that you had grown up in northern New Jersey, that much I did know. Uh, I wasn't sure how much of the metropolitan New York area it was, how urban it was. That I didn't know. But I did think about the lyrical content of this song and thinking about how it's sort of uh, my sort of initial superficial read of it seems to be lamenting the fact that there there may not be space for children in urban environments. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know if
1: that's at all anything that reflects your own childhood experience or...
0: It's, it, it it doesn't directly, but it does indirectly. You know, I, so, like I said, I grew up in a rural place and it's become less rural over the decades since I grew up, but there was woods behind the house I grew up in and it it, it was pretty, like, the highway was the highway, capital T, capital H, you know, two-lane highway, right? Um, but my dad always worked in, in the city, worked in, in Manhattan. And so we'd be, we'd go in there periodically. And so that was also, it wasn't home, obviously, but it was very familiar territory. And so from a very early age, I had a sense of these two worlds. Like there was this rural world that I lived in. And then there was this other urban world that was also kind of like just over the threshold because my dad went there to work. This, for me, the song, like the lyrics are beautiful and I appreciate them. But for me, the power of the song lies in um, in the melody and the sound and the corporeality of the experience of the music more than anything else. Now, I mean, I love his lyrics and I love a lot of his music. And my dad loved his music too, right? So I think the affect there comes from um, accruing that over time.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting that you basically, you had the rural life, but you also had one of the great cities of the world yeah. on your doorstep. So you yeah. kind of had the best of both happening at the same, you know, one and the same, yeah. um, and then I went
0: on to live there for quite a while yeah, yeah. Like later on. Well, so. I hope
1: we will hear about that. Yeah. Did you have any sort of formal musical education? Did you learn any instruments or, or no. anything like that?
0: And that's like a funny thing too. No, I didn't. I mean, like I learned, like my brother was taking piano lessons many, many years later. So like I would like fiddle with his books and like learned how to play a couple tiny little things. But it's funny because I'm accustomed to understanding myself as someone who like does not play any instrument, doesn't know anything about music, like does not have a good singing voice, but I love music. I love listening to music and learn to listen to it hard and with so much attention early on that I always feel like it's a contradiction. Like on the one hand I am completely unmusical, but on the other hand, I am like deeply love music. Right. So a funny in between kind of person that way. I think.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking now also about how you thought that everyone listened to music the way that your father. Yeah listen to music and sort of taught you to listen to music.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, do you remember when you sort of realized that wasn't the case? There probably wasn't necessarily an aha moment, but.
0: Well, I do. What I do remember is I remember coming back home and, and being in the sound room with him and listening to music together. So at a time when I had been out in the world and I had realized that people didn't listen to music all that way and I'd gone back and was doing it again. Mm. So he put on like some music that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just that it was good music was that it was technically good it was a beautiful recording it was something that repaid that kind of careful technical is such a cold word but like that you could appreciate it almost i don't know mathematically you could appreciate it for the clarity and purity of the sound
1: very well produced
0: yeah, yeah, and he, and so he would put, he would like the music he would play was very eclectic. Like he would play music that he liked, but he would also sometimes play music that was just technically really adroit. Like I remember, for example, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood, relax, absolutely, right? mm-hmm. like not a song I would normally expect my dad to like, but he he would play this record because it was incredibly intricately produced. It was mm-hmm. technically like just a virtuoso virtuoso piece of music. But anyways, I remember going back and listening to it with him, and I remember he like he really valued my opinion. I guess when it was listening to music, he would value my opinion opinion about what i was hearing and again it wasn't about the content of the music or the aesthetics because he'd often be testing out a preamp or an amplifier he'd built so he'd be interested in how full and how good the audio range was in particular you know particular parts of the the audio spectrum
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and he could test this you know with various you know like devices that he had right but my uh, ability to hear higher tones was better than his cuz he'd lost a you know lost a little bit of hearing as people often do over the passage of time right partly through his work and so he'd be really interested in what i had to say about where the mid range was or where the upper mid range was you know and it was like i don't know it was really neat to have that be a private space that we kind of both inhabited and and like i said where like you really valued my opinion and we were talking about something that i knew was really meaningful to him
1: yeah i'd say that's probably in a more macro level, really valuable as a child to sort of know that your opinion is wanted and valued. Like that's a good lesson to take on board developmentally, I should say. Totally. I'm curious what you were like as a child more generally, Mm. because I know you as a very sort of confident professional, like adult. And I have a little bit of trouble picturing you as someone like 10 years old.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So so like, I was like, I don't know if I was shy, but, um, I I mean, I think I was in the sense that, um, I don't know, like it's hard to know how it's impossible to know how people see you Mm -hmm. and only possible to remember how you saw yourself. So I was a kind of a plump child, understood myself as very shy, hated talking on the phone, was terrified of talking on the phone. Didn't like people to touch me, you know, had like all kinds of Fears, I think. But at the same time, I think I tried very hard to project some level of confidence. I was pretty sharp tongued as a child, like fairly like sarcastic, and learned to use that as a way of navigating the world. I, and I read a lot. I was a, My brother wasn't born until I was like 12 and a half, so I was on my own um, at home for a long, long time. Um, my mom was a Jehovah's Witness, and, and so was I as a result, right? And that meant your ability to interact with your community was very limited. Like it was understood that you would only spend time with other people who were also of uh, the same confessional orientation, right? And we didn't live in a town that had a congregation. So I wasn't really, you know, I didn't really have... Uh, Friendships to speak of outside of school. So, I mean, which sounds really horrible. Like, I don't mean to make it seem like, oh, I was a miserable child. I wasn't, like, I read a lot. I had this, I had a very big interior life, which was very satisfying. Like, I loved my interior life.
1: I mean, that's a gift that you carry with you your whole life, you know, the ability to be in your own head and be satisfied.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which sounds, I mean, I can't, I, I think it's a blessing. It's also a little weird. Like, sometimes if, I don't know, a situation is going on that's either difficult or I'm really bored, like, I literally have the feeling as if I've climbed into another space because i just turn off and think about something else i think about a book or i think about some imaginative landscape or some made-up story or something you know you're just there and not here um and so it's kind of wonderful but it's also a little i don't know it's a little scary to to be like that kind of person anyway so anyway, so that's what i was like and so i had a very very big interior life and i was desperate to get away from home like i don't mean to make that seem really negative. It, I think there were there were hard things that were going on. Um, My dad suffered really badly from depression. And that was exacerbated by the fact that he had, he was one of four brothers who'd been brought up in an abusive household. And two of his brothers committed suicide, right? Like one one when I was about uh, 12 and one a couple years later. And that was bad and sad in itself, uh, especially with one of my uncle's dad was very close with and close to the whole family, um his kids and everything, but it, they wrecked my those things wrecked my dad, my dad was never the same again, so it was a hard home to be in, especially in those years, so I was desperate to get out and so I went to college very early.
1: you mentioned your mother was Jehovah's witness, yeah. but not your father so was no. was that at all any sort of tension or difficulty or
0: well, it was interestingly not simply because like my, my mom was drawn into it when I was about seven years old or so. And so she got involved and, you know, and so she would go to meetings and if you're Jehovah's Witness, you go to like a lot of meetings every week. There were two hours on Sunday, one on Tuesday and two on Friday. And then you do witnessing where you go to door to door. Right. So we did that. So I went along cause I was a kid. Right. I mean, I didn't really like it, but you know, fine. Right. Um, but my dad was like, no, I'm not doing that. He didn't get in her way. He was like, that's fine. You want to do that. I mean, but he just like was not going to do that. Yeah. And the way that played out had to do with music, because my dad, as I mentioned, was like heavy into music. And it depends, I think, which Jehovah's Witness congregation you're in, what the norms are, what the expectations are. But certainly in the one that we were in, um, you know, bad music, like rock music or sexually oriented music and stuff like was kind of frowned on. It was left to you more or less as a family to kind of navigate, you know, how that would go. And I remember being aware in my household that um, it was not really a question of what music you were allowed or not allowed to listen to, because, you know, my dad voraciously listened to music and there was not going to be prohibitions on music. So that was kind of neat. Like music was this like music, like reading was a horizon of freedom.
1: Something that opens the world up. Absolutely. So you mentioned going to um, university at a very early age. Is that a good pivot point into our second song?
0: Yeah, because this is music I was listening to right before I went
1: All right, well, why don't we get into it? What is song number two?
0: It's Blondies, One Way or Another. Yes. One way or another.
1: So this is a pretty popular song. I'm quite familiar with it, as I think many listeners would be. And, I mean, it's a song about, like, stalking someone.
0: <laughs> it is. And I could have chosen one of the other songs from the mm-hmm. Parallel Lines album because it was really that album for me. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that, maybe that's a good choice of a song. But it could have been, like, Sunday Girl or something else off that album, too. Um, that whole album meant a lot to me.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is, like, uh, 1979. This is very New York. Mm-hmm. Um You mentioned – did you go to university in New York?
0: No, actually. So this album, Parallel Lines, and a couple of other albums were a gift. Remember just a couple moments ago, we were talking about music, like reading being a kind of a horizon of freedom. Absolutely. This this was part of that. Um, A a co-worker with my dad, a guy named named Kim Chin, he's a younger guy, and he was heavy into into music, and he had had a friend who was a DJ or something like that. So he would get sometimes um, sample albums, you know, and he gave me – one time when he'd come over to visit, he gave me three albums. It was Blondie's Parallel Lines, uh, a promo album of Elvis Costello that was um, kind of like the Armed Forces album. Like it had a lot of that stuff on it, but it was a different title. I don't know exactly what it was. And Talking Heads Fear of Music.
1: Fantastic. And,
0: yeah. And of course I'd never heard of any of these. And my dad did not listen to New Wave. Like later on he would a little bit, but he hadn't that wasn't a thing he had stumbled into. I kind of, like, didn't know what to make of them. And then I finally, like, put one of them on. And I think it was um, Parallel Lines was the first one. I was like, well, this is interesting, you know. And and the same thing with Elvis Costello with Talking Heads and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is, like, a whole other thing. This is this whole other world. Um, And I got really absorbed in the possibilities it opened up. And especially, and the reason I chose Blondie was I chose that album, Parallel Lines, because um it was, like, furious kind of like I don't mean furious angry I mean like furious like the power of the furies like it was like there's this incredible energy in this music um that I was really excited by and as I was getting and I knew at that point when I got these albums that I was going to be going to college that following fall like this was the 79 80 winter right it wasn't so much that they were directly linked like these albums and heading out the door but I kind of knew I was going to be heading out the door soon and the energy and the passion and that music just really kind of lit me up.
1: That's exciting. That's yeah. like, cause I mean, one of the things about Blondie is Debbie Harry has such a force of personality yeah. and uh, like it comes through the music. I mean, the, the other Elvis Costello and the Talking Heads, they also are music that I think of as having a lot of personality. Um, but like, it is very interesting that you anticipated basically setting out on your own, like leaving the nest, um, establishing yourself as an individual I mean, which is not necessarily saying you're casting your family away. No,
0: no, but you're going out in the world.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, there is something that is exhilarating about that,
0: Mm.
1: especially if you are someone who has been outward looking, which it Mm. sounds like you were, Mm. uh, you know, in terms of reading, in terms of listening to music, in terms of having Manhattan just over the hill. You know, Yeah,
0: and I kind of knew I was going to be needing to be looking for a voice. You know, I'd said already that I was like, Kind of, I think, fearful in some ways as a child, and like, I, like I said, I think I was I was articulate as a child, and I think I was tend to be very sarcastic, right? But I wasn't confident, and in like in Debbie Harry's voice, and that song is a good example, right? Because she's got this incredible sweetness to her voice early in these songs, often, and then it turns to this really strong and aggressive and often kind of harsh kind of voice and powerful, like this yeah. intoxicating level of power. And I remember just being fascinated by that. Like, wow, what is it like to inhabit that voice?
1: She kind of snarls in this song. I like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you describe me as like knowing me, you know, as a, as a mature person, as a confident person. And like, I think in that phase of life, I was really trying to figure out, well, how can I be a confident person? How can I be strong? Hmm. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why her music spoke to me so much.
1: So when you're heading off to university, did you have a clear idea of what it is you wanted to study? What was your ambition at the time?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. So that was all in rapid flux around that period. Um, the reason I went to um, university kind of early was was very serendipitous. Um, uh, I read a lot, then so I did well in school, right? And then at one point, it must have been like almost 14 like 13 going on 14 and i read an article in the new york times that was talking about how down at johns hopkins they had a they just started a program for verbally gifted youth and i was like wow this sounds really fascinating uh, and i don't even remember what led me to do this but my mom said she came in and found me on the phone with the educational testing service in princeton <laughs> um trying to find out who was the contact person for this program down at hopkins because they've been the educational testing service that been mentioned in the article right mm-hmm. anyway and so they gave me a phone number so i called down there and then alt and then to put my mom on the the phone and they're like oh yeah well if she wants to come to this program like she come down and you know take the test and my mom was completely weirded out by this and in retrospect i also am completely weirded out by this what kind of like you know weird child does this? a child is really <laughs> eager to get the hell out of the house right i guess it's the person who does this right but was, i just it's, really wanted to go right
1: from, from what you described of your personality at the time it seems out of character
0: <laughs> yeah no i know right uh i have no idea where that came from But it worked out because my uncle was living, my uncle Jim was living in Baltimore at the time. So we had somebody to stay with. So my mom drove me, she was super supportive, right? She drove me down there. And so they gave me the SAT to take to see if I would be able to place into this. It was basically, it was a study of of young kids, right? To see how much you could stimulate them to, to do well you know, in in studies. Right. So I did the verbal testing. And then I also, but they said, well, while you're here, why don't you also take the math part of the SAT? And I placed into the math stuff and the verbal stuff. So I spent the summer of 1979 in Baltimore, living at my uncle's, taking the bus in down to the Hopkins campus to do like coursework basically. But it was coursework of a very strange kind. It was like a room full of little kids, like between 11 and 13. Uh, I was one of the older ones. I turned 14 that summer. And then there'd be mentors, they call them. So these would be kids also who were like 17, 18 years old, who would kind of look over your work that you would do independently and answer questions if you had it. So I busted through like huge amounts of math um, over that summer. And so at the end of the summer, the admissions guy at Hopkins said, oh, would you like to come down to Hopkins? Because they would just take people from this study and just throw them into the undergraduate class. Wow. And I was like, uh, no, no. You know, if you're like little freaked out by this point but Mm -hmm. i but then after a year then i did go so when i a little after i turned 15 i went to college and so it was in some ways absolutely crazy right because i was completely unprepared emotionally i was completely unprepared emotionally but intellectually i was hungry Mm -hmm. Um, but i also didn't have good study habits right because i hadn't didn't have to have good study
1: habits i mean that's one of the pitfalls of being gifted Yeah. (laughs) yeah like uh i i not to toot my own horn, yeah. but like I can remember being 18, 19 and showing up at university and just coasting because I had always mm. coasted. And I yeah. had one professor who did the best thing, probably that's the best intervention educationally for me, yeah. where she said, I can tell that you've never had to work to get an A. I'm not going to give you an A until I Mm. see evidence that you're working. And that's what I needed to hear. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Um, I I, I hit exactly that wall. um, because So things that came easily or things that I could kind of do at the last minute, those are fine. Things where you had to have good study habits just really crashed and burned. And and I think, you know, that... um, I mean, I'm sure I wasn't alone in that. I noticed that kids who came in early uh, in those years to Hopkins, they would either do incredibly well academically or they crash and burn. Yeah. Uh, there were very few females. They were mostly all boys. When I got there, I, I thought I would be pre-med. I thought that would be interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in things like surgery. I thought that would be really fascinating. I also knew, and I figured this out by my second year in college, that I really wanted to have children. Uh, my mom had, had my brother when I was about 12 and a half, and he really loved having a baby in the house. And she was really great about being inclusive, about the whole experience. She had had home birth when he was born. And mm-hmm. it was a great experience. And I so I knew I wanted children. And so it dawned on me really early on, like I was in my second year of college, that if I wanted to have children, it, it didn't mean I couldn't have a meaningful career, but I'd have to think very carefully about what kind of career I could kind of fit around or fit my life into, you know, in other words, yeah. where you could match those things up.
1: So, you would have been like 16 or 17 when you were making that plan. Oh, 16. Like, that, that's an incredible amount of um, foresight for someone in that age.
0: In retrospect, it's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I know. That's the way I was thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. So, that led you away from medicine.
0: Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, but I, and I had always loved reading. I had always loved history and always loved literature. And so one of the great things about Hopkins is they would let you do at that time what they called the humanities area major. And basically it was like you figured out what you wanted to concentrate in. So I did English history and English literature. And um, at that time, too, they were really good about if um, there was a graduate course going on in an area and if you get permission from the instructor, you could take it. So I got to do old English while I was there and old French and, you know, a whole bunch of like really interesting courses that you wouldn't normally get as an undergrad. So I came out, like, not with a well-rounded education, but with some really shining spots in it.
1: I want to weave Blondie in a little bit here. Yeah. You mentioned how when you showed up to university, you were intellectually hungry, but you were emotionally mature, which you were... You were like 15 years old. Like yeah. When 18-year-olds show up for undergraduate, a yeah. lot of them are challenged by the sudden leap in emotional difficulty that their life has taken. I know that my first year at university was filled with difficulties because of that. Mm. So, I mean, that's to be expected, I should say. But I'm thinking about how music can be a sort of testing ground for yeah. various emotional things. and And not only does music sort of elicit emotion, but it can also sort of... I think, help our emotional development, um so like were you were you listening to your blondie when you were listening to parallel lines a lot when you were in your undergraduate
0: all kinds of so like blondie yes um also like all kinds of dance music like like i almost chose the b-52s dance this mess around because this that's a song that doesn't reflect that threshold period going into university but it does reflect the time when i was there um because music was everywhere right everybody was playing music and i had brought my music with me but also just sharing music with people like the way i was getting to know people you know whether it was people i was dating or friends or whatever Was like you shared your music and that gave you a sense of who somebody was as a human being what their what, what music they liked and what music of yours they liked like that told you so much about them in terms of this emotional immaturity for me the main thing was about like um sexuality and being comfortable with other people like i had grown up in a relatively sheltered environment small town raised as a jehovah's witness my mom stopped uh, being involved with that when my brother was little so like maybe 14 to 15 was post jehovah's witness but like so i had no experience of dating like i didn't know anything and i got to university and you know uh, uh, like that was all available all of a sudden this is 1980 right and I kind of threw myself into it because that was the way I thought I could master it you know I thought the way you take control of your life and you take control of your sexuality you take control of who you are in the world is you just aggressively put yourself out there Mm. um so so I did a certain amount of that um and I guess you know those first two years were hard emotionally I mean, yeah. I loved, there were a lot of things I loved about it, and there were a lot of very joyful moments. There was a lot of very dark moments. It was hard, emotionally, those years. Um, and the kind of music that was there was, you know, like, Lots of Elvis Costello, lots of Blondie, Talking Heads. And like I mentioned the B-52s because I just remember, again, that kind of corporeal experience of music, you know, yeah. like just like having dance parties in your house and stuff like that, and just like dancing for hours and hours. And and I started to develop another kind of confidence in that way, like a bodily confidence for the first time, I think, at that point. Um, it was really right in that second, third year of college that I started to like develop some sense of somebody who could put themselves out there in the world.
1: An adult... Uh, I mean, like, not just intellectually, unemotionally, but Uh, physically as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And powerful. You know, like, (laughs) I mean, that's not something I I don't think I felt that at the time. But looking back, I'm like, yeah, that was a kind of a beginning of like, owning your body and owning yourself in the world.
1: This is something that I have often thought about, but I've never been able to find a good way to express. Mm. But when I was that age, i was really drawn to music that made me feel powerful
0: yeah yeah right
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i still like it like that's still one of my favorite types of music when you put it on you're like you just feel like yes yeah i i like uh, powerful is the is the best word for it so yeah yeah Mm. right so if you're ready why don't we move on to the third song what do we have
0: david sylvian's forbidden colors
1: So this was a treat. Uh, I was not familiar with this. It's really beautiful. Oh, I think you would love it because, you know, I
0: know you're a pianist, right? Mm -hmm. It's an amazing piece, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's very beautiful. It's elegant. It's um, sad. Mm. (laughs) Well, why don't you tell me how you came to discover this? Like, do you remember the first time you heard it?
0: I do. At least I remember the feeling of the first time I heard it, you know? I think I know where I was. So, it's a song that came out in 83, uh, and it was re released as a bonus track in his album Songs from the Beehive. And Mm -hmm. the first time I heard it uh, must have been, I was on that album, and I think um, uh, Eddie, who I was married to for many years, and who at that time was either my boyfriend or my friend, you know, because we were always either together or not together, but like we were always together on some level. He was the one who introduced me to it. And I remember listening to it together and being really moved by it. And then I remember also subsequently listening to it again, um, when we were living together in New York, a little later on, this was first in Philadelphia and then later in New York. And for me, it's music that Again, I, I remember in this very bodily kind of way because this So this is a period of time after college and before graduate school. And it's important to understand that for me, that was like almost a separate life. Uh, originally, I was going to go straight to graduate school um, in English and comparative literature, like right after college. And I got a summer job and it was like literally the second week of August. I thought there's no way I can be in school again for another like four or six years. That's just, I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I deferred. I thought it'd be for a year. And it wasn't, it ended up being four years before I finally went to graduate school. And it was, I always say it was the one really smart decision I ever made in my entire life. Um, because I just totally, I don't want to say grew up, like I changed as a person so much that when I got to graduate school, I was really ready there. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I was looking for. And I—I—I I, I did those, I did those things as well as I could. And so this in-between, so so David Sylvian is very much part of this in-between time. And so during this time, I was working as a video playback, which is kind of like an assistant editor in a post-production facility. I worked for a whole bunch of different ones, first in Philadelphia and then in New York. And uh, it was also a time of like, I guess you would say, sowing wild oats. So there was a lot of going out, like, I mean, I would go to work and then I'd be out late at night and there was like a fair amount of, you know, illicit substance use. There was a lot of mescaline, MDMA and, uh, and a lot of tequila, you know, I mean, so it sounds really bad, but I mean, it was good no, for me. No, it sounds really good. Well, no, I mean, it was really good for me in the sense that um, Absolutely. I, I became comfortable in that environment and grew emotionally so mm-hmm. much in that period. Like I really did. And um, so with David Sylvia, like I remember the, the feeling of listening to that music, which is incredibly beautiful in itself, but listening to it when you've also either taken mescaline or taken MDMA really quite something it's like and and it was like spiritual it was uh it was emotionally so transformative for me that time and that music and those experiences um so spiritual sounds probably really stupid right because you will be like well no you were like partying that's carnal And it, but it, it was that and it was also this other thing too like as a human being I was just a different human being at the end of that time
1: yeah I, I mean it makes perfect sense for me that you would use a word like spiritual and I want to ask you about that actually but I mean you can think about many religious traditions that have like things like trance dance, mm-hmm. um, like rituals that involve repetitive movements. I'm thinking about Sufis twirling around. Like there's all kinds mm-hmm. of different, yeah. or or like you know uh, people you know taking various substances to go on their vision quests and so forth. Like there's all kinds of different ways to access that. Frame of mind yeah. and what you just described—taking a little substance, listening to this song—yeah,
0: like, yeah. But yeah. I
1: can totally see that as a, as a pathway to having it, to experiences like that. But like, you use the word spirituality or spiritual, and I'm I'm interested in having you expand on that a little bit, like, yeah. Because you you had this Jehovah's Witness background, but that's in in the rear view now so yeah
0: yeah yeah no it's really interesting you you ask Mm -hmm. about that because i hadn't put it together in those ways before so i think in terms of spirituality and spiritual experience like music had been a way to open that door for a long long time because i mentioned already like always having a stereo from from a young age like my dad was really proactive about you know making sure i had my own stereo i had my own music and i also had my own headphones like, i had some good headphones and um you know once my little brother was born i was 12 you know you couldn't blast the stereo <laughs> so much in your, your room like baby might be sleeping right mm-hmm. so i would listen to all kinds of stuff on the headphones and i remember like i listened to a lot of pink floyd um, um and you know and some other kind of like sort of more experimental stuff and um that was you know it was kind of spiritual in the sense that you know you'd listen to the music and you'd listen to it really loud with good quality sound and you just see things you close your eyes you just see things you just see images that arise from the music and that was something that you know again I said I was somebody who was very introspective like I had a big interior world and reading was one way in, but music was the other way in. Um, so so I think music and spirituality was something that was there from a very early stage. And even like we're talking about Cat Stevens as like a little kid, like, you are know, just feeling the music in your body, right? That's spiritual, right? When you feel the music shake your bones, right? In some way, right? Um, so I was very open to that. So even though I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, I did not have any sense of spirituality out of that religion. Like I found it interesting. I learned a lot about the Bible, which as a medievalist later on was super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. But And I've written about that elsewhere, like the kinds of things that I acquired um, from the habits of mind that you get in a community like that, um, the sort of kinds of practices you internalize. But it wasn't spirituality. There was nothing of that. Um, but in that same period of time, uh, like sort of toward the, uh, a little, like at the end of that in between time, like once I'd started graduate school, I did find other ways of, um, fulfilling that desire for more of a spiritual life when I became a Muslim. And that mm-hmm. was like in the late eighties. So that was like when, in, when I just started graduate school, I was, I was interested in curious about Islam, but I became a Muslim, like, I guess in that first year,
1: I would love to hear the story of that. If you're, if you'd like to share it.
0: Yeah, Sure. So I was always very, very interested in theology, like in an abstract way. I always found theology absolutely fascinating. So I had read a fair amount about it. So I, you know, had a kind of a knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And um, as part of that, when I was um, a young teenager, so like 14 maybe, um, so I got to learn about Catholicism. And the way I got to learn about this was partly just like, you know, reading stuff. But also when I would walk home from high school, uh, occasionally I'd walk home to my grandmother's house instead of walking all the way home. And... um, there was at that time a friary on that street, a Franciscan friary, um, in the small town I grew up bizarrely enough. Um, and um like one, of the, one day was one of the friars was in the garden and I just like went over and talked to him. I was <laughs> like, again, totally out of character, I don't know what the hell that was. Um, and just, you know, expressed some interest. And he, you know, in this circumspect kind of way, obviously it was not, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for him to be like kind of counseling and rhetoric. And so he effected an introduction to one of the priests in that community and and like and I didn't like he kinda of sketched me out a little bit, so I did not really go back but i maintained a little bit of a correspondence with that friar and and so developed um an interest in catholic spirituality for a couple years right and i wasn't really super involved but it was like i was learning about how theology and spiritual experience might possibly connect so i was kind of a little bit open to it and sort of like looking around and then i got to know about um, islam and um islamic theology and it hung together for me intellectually which sounds kind of silly i suppose like you know spirituality is is affective right it's about how you feel and not about what you think but for me i kind of had to have both of those things there yeah and so that intellectual engagement with um the theology of islam and just the ways in which revelation was understood and the function of the book and the ways in which islam is understood as one phase in a sequence of progressive revelations that come through judaism and christianity and then islam this is to me immensely satisfying intellectually and kind of I don't know, almost aesthetically, like it Mm -hmm. was harmonious, you know, again, to like use a musical metaphor, like it, it sounded right. Um, And then I became more and more affectively drawn in. So I became intellectually drawn in before I became affectively drawn in. I had started um, my master's at um, Columbia with the intention of going on for the PhD. And so I felt God, what did I do? I looked up the Muslim Students Association and left a message for the guy who was the president of the Muslim Students Association. And again, like like that friar years ago, like mm-hmm. he didn't feel it was appropriate for him to teach me anything. But his wife, who worked in the library at Columbia, he put me in touch with her. Her name was Tasneem. And she was incredibly kind and generous. And she just spent hours and hours with me for a period of weeks, just sort of teaching me um, the prayers and the pronunciation and just talking over things. And she gave me books. She was very, um, she was like very learned um, and lovely person. Um And um, so that was incredibly helpful on that journey. And then there were other people I got to know. So that was a whole different phase of my life. So I became like a lot of converts do. I think, you know, there's nothing like the zeal of the convert, right? So I became very involved. Like I never wore um, hijab, like I never covered up completely, but I wore very modest clothing for a long time. Like when I came to Toronto in 95, I was still wearing very modest clothing. Like I wore long sleeves and skirts below the knee and stuff like that. I don't know if people really noticed because I was wearing suits and stuff, but mm-hmm. I was, I was very, I was in to it.
1: And Toronto is, well, I was going to say Toronto is, can be very straight-laced. Um, it can mm-hmm. also be very wild. I think Toronto is just a sort of city where there's a lot of different people and people just, for the most part, are going to take you as you are. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot
0: of possibilities there.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't know, well, I don't know, actually. I was going to say I don't know a lot of people who have like undergone adult conversion. I can think of three or four in my head. Um, it It is something that I think a lot of people... Are unfamiliar with. Um, a lot of people either follow the path where they just accept the tradition they are raised in, or they reject the tradition they are raised in, but don't really replace it with anything.
0: Yeah, I think that may be true. And also, I think I don't know if people talk about it a lot. Like maybe yeah. within certain kinds of religious communities, people do talk about those experiences. Mm-hmm. But I don't get the sense that mm, I don't get the sense that people who understand themselves as also pretty secular in some ways, often talk, like people who are currently very active in their faith community will sometimes talk about conversion experience. But I don't get the sense that those of us who understand ourselves as participating in a secular life talk about it. Like, It's not like I had this conversion and then, like, oh, I was done being Muslim. No, I mean, being Muslim is still really fundamental to who I am, and I think about it a lot, and there's a lot of ways in which... there's a center of gravity in my life around that. But I don't, for example, I don't cover up in the same kind of way. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't drink alcohol. I do drink alcohol again. So I, I don't know if it makes sense to talk about secular, being a secular Muslim. I don't know if it's the right kind of language for that. But I think it's really important that people who understand themselves as inhabiting a confessional identity, but who live lives that are, you know, in the secular, that are not yeah. ostentatious in displaying their religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I don't think we tend to talk about our religious commitments, those of us who are like that. And I think we should.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think in terms of um, Islam in particular, there is such a cartoonish idea of it in a lot of people's minds right now, that the idea that someone might be sort of relaxed Mm -hmm. and secular in their lifestyle, yet still be a serious Muslim, is something that might not occur to everyone.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's partly because, um, like in North America, at least, and perhaps more broadly, there's this real tendency to identify Islam with uh, ethnic or racial identities, right? Mm -hmm. Like, white people who are Muslims, who are converts, you know, a lot of times these are people who are still very, um, how can I put it? Very public about their faith commitments. Either they're wearing hijab or they're just being very, exp- they're really making sure you can read them as Muslim. Muslim. Yeah. But it would be interesting if those people who are not so obviously visibly Muslim were more open about that. Um, you know, I think, I think that is happening, but it's happening at a slow pace, that kind of visibility of that, all that's um, part of the iceberg that's below the surface. Yeah.
1: And I mean, you spoke about the zeal of the convert. I (laughs) mean, I relate this to a lot of the times when people first come out, they're really, really, really out at (laughs) first. And I mean, when you're taking on sort of a new identity and you're affirming it for the first time, you really want to go all in. And then after a couple of years, you can relax a little.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so it's a little bit that, you know, that you can relax a little bit. It's also like, for me, it's a little bit of a turning point that happened after 9-11. So what I was horrified by was the really jingoistic expressions of uh, patriotism lined up with religion that you saw in the U S like I was living in Canada and I was really put off by that. Um, I, I had a how can I put this? I was horrified by what had happened and by the loss of life. Um, I was deeply disturbed by the bellicosity and the willingness to go to war, Um, the kinds of American patriotism that were emerging in that period that was lined up with a kind of um, resurgence of an evangelical mentality that now, I mean, this is our new normal, right? But it was just happening then. And what it led me to feel was that extremism in religion was a bad thing. It it led me to believe that, you know, you had to be self-critical and think about who you were you know, and and how that was going to affect other people. I'm not expressing it very well, but for me, that was like, it wasn't like all of a sudden I started to think about that way quite suddenly. My behaviors changed very gradually. Um, But my sense of how you might use religion in the public sphere and how you might act in that public sphere, that changed a lot. The other thing I guess that was on my mind was with the zeal of the convert, you know, I had been really Assertive in trying to sort of live up to that Muslim identity. Like, I remember, for example, you remember the whole, I don't know if you remember, but like the whole Salman Rushdie affair around the satanic verses and all that? Absolutely. Yeah, Mm yeah. So, that, when I was living in New York at that time, and you know, there are people who were out protesting in the streets about Rushdie, and I was one of them. I, I was like, you know, it was in that phase of life where I was like, well, you know, that's that, that is blasphemy. That's a bad thing. Like, I would not in any way have advocated violence, right? But protesting and making visible the effects of that book was something at that, at that time, I was really ready to line up behind. And, and just thinking about that, you know, free speech, what do we mean by free speech? How do we manage those boundaries? How do we um, cultivate our communities in a way that's inclusive, right, and not harmful? That's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I find it still a little bit I don't want to say a mystery, but I find that I'm still really struggling to untangle the extent to which that whole conversation around free speech and religion and observance of respect of others' religion, the extent to which, like, how do we patrol those borders, you know? Um, and, and this is not a finished conversation. This is a conversation that's very much in in our communities right now for other reasons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel ready to move to the next song? Yeah, sure. I feel like it's going to be a bit of a tonal shift.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it is and it isn't, right? Because we were talking about disjunctions in personal life, you know. That's true. Whether it's conversion, whether it's um, um, leaving university, you know, living this other life where you're sowing your wild oats, um, you know, graduate school, after graduate school. This is, um, for me, a real threshold choice.
1: Well, before we go any further, why don't you tell the listeners what it is?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's Missy Elliott's Work It. Yes, go <laughs> downtown and eat <Yes>. it like a vulture. See my hips and my tips, <laughs> so chop. See my ass <laughs> and my lips, don't chop. Lost a few pounds in my whips, go yard. It's the kind of beat to go by ta ta. ta 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 ta. Sex me so good, I say blab.
1: I've been displeased that we seem to have forgotten about Missy Elliott for a few years, She's along the so line good. there. She's, She's so, so good. Yeah. Um, this is great. It was a real treat for me to watch the music video once again last night when I was preparing for the for this. So, um, you mentioned this is sort of a, a threshold turning point type thing. So, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, yeah, like so. The the song came out in 2002, but I only started listening to it around 2005. And I know it must have been around then because I know my youngest child was about two years old or so. And it was when I started to listen to music again after a long time of not listening. Mm. And the reason for that wasn't because of like, we're talking about like um, a conversion to Islam had nothing to do with that. It was because, you know, uh, we've already talked about how important my dad was in my musical education and my love of music. He died very suddenly in 1998 and I had had a really good stereo, you know, with like, Uh, a really good amplifier and a preamp he had built and so on and i didn't realize it at the time but looking back like i just never played that stereo again like i just literally never played that stereo again after he died (laughs) like
1: became like painful or yeah from one
0: day to the next right This is years later, right? So um, uh, one of the kids had outgrown a kind of a CD player karaoke machine, right? And Mm -hmm. and found its way into the kitchen. And I picked up one of her, one of my oldest daughter's CDs. She had Missy Elliott's, you know, the CD that Work It was on. And I put it on. I was like, oh, this is really good. And then I started listening to music in the kitchen when I was washing the dishes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on this really crappy, like hand-me-down kids CD player. Um, But it became, uh, again, a doorway um, into music that, like that was my music right that I mean it was yeah it was a hand-me-down that I found around the house but it was like powerful and it was exciting and it made me start to just I don't know like uh, kind of come to life again a little bit musically after a long period of not um, yeah I mean it's a really short little story but yeah but that's what it meant to me and then also I mean you know, we were talking about Debbie Harry before, right? Like this idea of like powerful women's voices. This was a voice that was powerful in a totally different kind of way. I had always loved um, like techno pop music. Mm-hmm. I was heavy into that um, when I was in college, like, I don't know, like craft work or some phases of Peter Gabriel and stuff like that. Like I love that kind of stuff. Um, Tom Tom Club, stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously Missy Elliott's super different from that. It's hip hop and stuff. It's totally different. But just the sort of the techno feel to it it was very familiar like that was something i'd loved for a long long time and it was also totally different and there was this amazing voice you know like um by which i mean like personality like not just the voice like the sound of the voice but like the voice yes and that was great
1: i mean i'm thinking about how as like me a middle class white kid Mm -hmm. was sort of raised in the tradition like oh like rap music is not good music and then Mm. getting a little bit older and sort of casting aside the prejudices that you were sort of raised within and realizing okay like it it's electronic music that also has loads of personality why wouldn't you love it Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah and i mean that is precisely like missy elliott is such a perfect gateway to that because she is this powerful force the music is very cleverly produced, there's something that sounds... Almost, I don't want to say unsettling, but like slightly dystopian or something yeah, in a lot of the no, music.
0: I, I totally agree with you. I think dystopian mm. is exactly the right mm-hmm. word, like in, in this really engaging kind of way. um You know, you're talking about rap and hip hop just a couple of minutes ago. So I'd been working in video, right? So between college and grad school. Mm-hmm. And I kept freelancing for a little bit the first year I was in grad school. And um, so I would still be down like in the video houses, right? And I remember like a couple of friends I had there. So this is like 88. So hip hop was just happening or was just getting more mainstream, I guess. That period, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and um so I remember, like you know, being introduced to a little bit of it, and I had kind of liked rap a bit, but I was always like uh, a, a little hesitant around the way the gender dynamic worked sure. and the way mm-hmm. in which it could be quite misogynist. But even when it wasn't being misogynistic, it was even so. It was like narrow, you know, like a close. I felt like a little bit of a closed box. Like I liked it in a lot of ways. I'd like the the rhythms. I like the repetition. I like the facility with language. Like I was drawn to that, but there was also felt like it was a little bit of a closed box. And so Missy Elliott was totally blowing that box open, um, in ways that you were just describing and the slightly dystopic kind of flavor to it. Um, that was just, I don't know, just took it on a whole nother level. So I was like really in love with her for a while.
1: Yes. Did you watch the music video back when you were discovering it or?
0: (laughs) But Not at that time, but then later (laughs) on, I was like, this is just transformative. (laughs) And yeah, like, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but like, I guess one of the things that was so for me, very powerful is that there was this real, not just corporeality, but like fleshiness or sexuality Mm -hmm. and a sexuality and a sort of comfort in the body that would allow for that how can I put it? That wasn't just singular. It was also about like the community of people. It's about all the dancers. Like you know, there's children dancing in that video, right? And it's not gross or icky, right? That they're like, it's just about the celebration of the body in ways that include everything.
1: And, Kids love rhythms. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and that openness um, mm-hmm. uh, was for me really empowering.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it is that is actually something very interesting that you just pointed out. It's like it, this is inclusive, mm. like. You can have a four-year-old loving yeah. this, and it's fine. Yeah, but it also is very sort of assertive in its sexual agency and so forth. You know, thinking about the lyrics, like, "Call before you come." Yeah, uh, yeah, like, I, know, I, I, I know. I know. And she, she's holding on a tufted, like shaved pubic hair, to the camera in the video. <laughs> like, go downtown, eat it like a vulture. Like I know. I know. It's just, it's just so like owning. Her body and owning her sexual agency. And it's like there's no shame. There's absolutely no shame. shame. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah.
0: And that creates a space where it's incredibly capacious.
1: Yeah like i think missy Elliott is like looking at the video she's obviously an attractive woman but she's not hollywood attractive you no. know
0: and that gets highlighted in the video <laughs> in these really cool kinds of ways right um yeah and it's so interesting you know now that you're talking about that you know we're having this conversation it makes me realize that maybe one of the reasons it was speaking to me so powerfully was because i had changed in some really important ways mm-hmm. over that time because i'd had I, like i described the loss of my dad but also i would had my kids right yeah. um, from 89 to 2003 i had four kids and um i mentioned way back earlier that growing up i was somebody who did not like to be touched like i was quite shut off i think from the world in a mm-hmm. lot of ways and even once i went to college and became you know sexually active i was it was about control like it was about um i was still very uncomfortable i think yes. with, with those kinds of things But the way I became comfortable with myself and became comfortable with my body, and I know this sounds a little weird, but it was through having children, Um, not just through childbirth, but through nursing and through just the kind of trusting, mutual care that you have in that relationship with a child. So at the end of that time, I'd come out as somebody who was very comfortable with my body um, in a way that. I was transformed by that and so for me maybe one of the reasons why Miss Elliot spoke to me is there was that that inclusive comfort with the body with corporeality Mm -hmm. that made room for all kinds of physical contact all kinds of loving physical contact and it was just it spoke to me on that level I think
1: that's so that's so interesting um (laughs) it's actually really funny well it's not really funny but my my first like initial reaction to that is like oh like Having children and raising children was this sort of tutelage in mm-hmm. learning to like love and accept your own body and yeah. the bodies of others and and physicality. And I was like, yeah, that's something that like as I men will never have. <laughs> Well, I mean, I or they don't get it know. in different ways. They get it in different ways, but that is one particular pathway that is specific well, to people who have um, uteruses. Well, I,
0: I don't know. You know, I mean, no. it's a really interesting question because I think it was much less the fact of um, pregnancy and childbirth okay. than it. I mean, that was maybe part of it, but more than anything else. Um, you know, and then lactation, right? But but mm-hmm. more than anything else, just the sense that when you're holding a child, right, you, or you're, you're the caregiver of a child, like they're comfortable in your arms, they fall asleep in your arms, and you fall asleep holding them. Ah. And, um, you know, you I have a hard time looking people in the eye normally. I think some of us do, right? Um, but with a little child, I have no problem with that at all, right? Because you look at them, they look at you, you're right close up to each other.
1: A baby has a very direct stare. <laughs>
0: yeah. And they teach you how to accept that, right? Mm-hmm. And so so i think what you're saying yeah maybe there is a bit of a gender dimension or um uh like the body is involved in certain ways that are dictated by the state of your body right yeah but i think fundamentally that's a door that's open on some level i think to anyone who's who's caregiving um uh, and it might not even be just a child right but but, uh, as a caregiver
1: anyone who's been socialized as male yeah could benefit from learning nurturing behaviors Oh, like
0: yeah. child care so oh, yeah yeah no one of the things that was great bringing up um you know like um especially my first two kids is that their father was around a lot and um you, you know would 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 put them in the sling and carry them around and like take them to the lab and like and just and and there's a tremendous value in that no matter you know who you are in in learning learning that corporeal dimension of care um and it changed me a lot
1: yeah that's fascinating that's Mm. great
0: yeah it was a really good thing i was really Mm -hmm. fortunate in that
1: yeah all right so if you're ready why don't we move on to your last song
0: okay yeah it's um mia's xxxo xxxo
1: xxxo
0: So. Yeah, and I knew you would love that one because
1: you both <laughs> yeah. love her so much. Yeah, so actually, um, if you want to hear me and Suzanne talk about MIA, there's an episode of The Scene of the Scene, which is another podcast on the Megaphonic Network where we went to see a documentary about her early career or her whole career, really. And then it we chatted awesome. about it afterwards. It was great. So I knew you were another super fan like myself. And I had a strong hunch that there, I mean, I figured there's a good chance you'd have an MIA song. This wouldn't have been the one I would have suspected. <laughs>
0: (laughs) No, what would you have chosen?
1: I was thinking about this and I wasn't sure. Maybe Bad Girls?
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. that I thought about
1: that. That was a possibility. (laughs) But I'm really intrigued. Um, uh, What drew you to XXXO?
0: yeah so so, as you know, I had loved her music for for a while, and I'd actually run across her music maybe two thousand and nine, like not that long before um and at a time when um my like my personal life was really complicated, my marriage was kind of falling apart, and it had we'd been living separately for a long time since like two thousand and two, but like it two thousand nine ten it was clear things were just coming apart yeah. and I had begun for the first time to start to imagine being on my own. Like I'd been living on my own, but I hadn't understood myself. Like I hadn't understood what had happened. And I'm beginning to realize it at that time. Um, And to think of like, who was I outside of this marriage that I'd been in since like 1989 and a relationship I'd been in since uh, 1981, right? So like since I was 16, right? So like, who was I outside of this? And so MIA was a big part of that exploration for me. And, you know, music had become super important to me again by this time. And I started to think about like, Uh, What, what, who was I before that? Who was I outside of that relationship? What kinds of things, in particular, what kinds of music had I liked before and put aside? Um, and what kind of things might I like now, right? So Mia was really part of this. And um, so I'd run across some of her music, like paper planes and stuff like that, right? But then I started to listen to as much of her music as I could find. And I, and as you know, I went to go see her, and that was really awesome. Mm-hmm. And the thing I was responding to, and again, this is it's interesting how similar this is to, you know, we're talking about uh, Deborah Harry a little bit earlier, this, this sense of power that there was a voice here that you could imaginatively inhabit and feel empowered by and feel like you were like, you're saying like bad boys is a good song for that. Like totally mm-hmm. it absolutely yokes that feeling. Um, XXXO is one that I was drawn to again, partly because of the, Powerfulness of it, but above all because of like the 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 open owning of sexuality in it. You know, it's like it's a the music. I don't know if you saw the music video. It's like yeah. very erotic, right? And no, but it's beautiful no, it is, it too, is. right? It's incredibly erotic, it's, but it's also it, beautiful.
1: It's, it's 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 kind of has this MySpace aesthetic that yeah, I just I love. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's 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 a little bit funny. Like yeah. I, I think it's meant to be playful oh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: there's like some real self parody going on in there yeah. right? Um, but that's the thing. It's about performance. It's like you mm-hmm. want me to. Be somebody that I'm really not, right? Like who? They, what? What are you? What self are you going to perform? You know, and how is it going to be responded to? Um. So, so part of what I was drawn to was like the power there. Part of what I was drawn to, uh, so the power as in like, in, so, not so different from what we we're talking about with Debbie Harry. Um. Also that sort of um confident sexuality that we we're talking about in connection with Missy Elliot. You know, this um not capacious and community based in the way we were talking about with regard to Missy Elliott, here solitary and really fixed on the individual body, but also very much about um sexuality was something that might be exuberant and overflowing but it was also something you can control that would serve you like you weren't serving it it was serving you in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. um, so i was really drawn to that those two things like, This sounds like terrible doesn't it like sexuality and power was what i was drawn to but you know these no. i was i was trying to figure like you know who was i outside of all of that uh, outside of being a mother and having been in that marriage yeah. and you know and being being that person who who else was i yeah.
1: So many of us are taught to keep those aspects of ourselves chained yeah, up in little boxes. and you hide them. Yeah, and it's yeah. not healthy, and it's so worth celebrating when we learn to open up those boxes and let those forces out. Yeah. Like, they can be harmful if they're not controlled and, like, understood, but the way you, you learn to understand them and control them is by experiencing them and, and living in them, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um,
0: also, I started to become interested in, you know, how do you – how can I put this – so what kind of self do you perform absolutely and what is the role of sexuality and the way you carry your body in that performance and i guess it's something i kind of i guess we'd all been doing right to a mm-hmm. certain extent but i had never thought about it quite that way before um and i was i think again i mean in ways that are very different from adolescence but i think i was again kind of searching for a sense of like what self am i performing
1: like to me when i hear this song particularly the chorus, which is it's that's a very strong hook. And Mm. it really sticks out in my mind, when she's repeating, you want me to be somebody who I'm really not. Mm. It's about managing expectations. And and this is coming at a point in her career when she has become kind of a global pop superstar, and is expected to sort of play a certain role, when she really doesn't necessarily want to play that role, she'd like to leverage the fame that she now has to further her own sort of ends artistic Mm. and political Mm -hmm. but she's not interested in being lady gaga you know -hmm. (laughs) or i mean that's not fair to lady gaga she does a lot of political work as well she doesn't want to be an empty signifier like no yeah no she Um, wants
0: to control the message
1: exactly exactly and uh when i was relating this to you i was thinking about like you're a prominent academic you're a professor who teaches undergraduates um you inhabit certain roles. Like you're you're a woman in a patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um you have a lot of external expectations on the way that you should be. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you grabbing onto this song for your final choice was a way of perhaps shrugging at expectations that are placed on you that might not be comfortable.
0: That's a really interesting question. You know, um I can answer that best I think a little bit obliquely because it's it's, you know, the five song format Works really well. No, I think it works beautifully, right? And I kind of tried to choose things that would be sort of threshold songs that would kind of point back at a time before and point forward to the time they were entering into. And but that's it, it, the older you are, the harder that is, right? Um, because there's m- not that. Not, I mean, there are additional phases, right?
1: Yes. Things have to be left out.
0: Yeah, things have to be left out. You can only tell, you only have so much time to tell the story, right? And and the uh, so that's part of one constraint. But the other constraint is, is I think that it's, way easier to see those see those songs that stand out and those turning points in the rear view mirror so I can see all of these pretty clearly looking back at them but if I was thinking about now that would be super hard you know I think of a whole bunch of different songs and I don't think any one of them stands out like some of them are songs from a long time ago that I got really absorbed in again like I was listening to a lot of Motown the last couple of years like mm-hmm. huge amounts of Motown like and, and Philly Soul like the Shy Lights and stuff like that which I really love um, Billy Paul you know like um and but i don't know i don't know what that myth like i won't know what now looks like until it's in the rearview mirror i feel like
1: yeah no absolutely you can only observe things once they've it's like holding something too close to your face you can't read it
0: (laughs) yeah no that's exactly right you know um and what you're saying to you about like expectations people have of you, I think it's such an interesting question. Um, I said at the very beginning of this conversation, we were talking a little bit about um, the work I do and which parts of it are most important to me, or which ones I take most, most pleasure in. And I mentioned research having drawn me into this kind of work early on, then discovering to my surprise that I really got a huge pleasure out of teaching, and then more recently being drawn increasingly to collaborative work. And and I feel a little bit like you know you mentioned at the outset that I'd been at Toronto for a long time. Now I'm going to be moving down to the us and taking on a new position that's a little bit differently configured like i'm a little fearful and also a lot excited like think about well what how might i shape that what spaces might i be able to create that bring other people in to do other kinds of things so in some ways i'm very tentative but in some ways i feel like i've learned how to how to build community in certain kinds of ways so i'm hoping i can try to build community in successful ways there as well but i don't know what it will look like yet
1: yeah yeah well i'm sure it'll i'm sure it'll be fantastic
0: i hope so yeah. i hope so i mean possibility is all we have right
1: Mm-hmm. and yeah like it seems that you have opportunities to do things and the sort of life experience that has sort of allowed you to capitalize on those opportunities so it'll be good yeah um I'm trying to think now.
0: I guess. I know. Yeah. It's interesting you say about like having life experience. Like when we are talking together, because we've talked about things that I, I've, I've always known, but I haven't thought about a lot, you know, like you don't think consciously about your early life that much, right? Yeah. I was really desperate to grow up as a child, right? Like desperate to get out of the house, desperate to go to university and, you know, and and, and then have kids, finish grad school, have kids, you know, like, you know, get tenure, get promoted, you know, do all the things, right? And like, I'm really acutely aware of, how can I put this? almost for the first time, not really having a strong sense of direction. Right. You know, I have a sense of things I, I could could do and, and, and things I would like to help with and um, ways I would like to be an accomplice and an ally and further, further good things, right? And build community. But I don't have that sense of there's the target, there's the destination. It's more like trying to figure out how, I mean, this sounds a little kitschy, right? how to serve, how to create environments where good things can happen, you know, like maybe create a garden that things can grow in right Mm -hmm. um so i don't know quite what that will look like but i'm really eager to figure it out
1: this is something that i've thought about i mentioned how i really like songs that make me feel powerful and Mm. you said that you do too and what use is power like it's fun to revel in the feeling of have it having it but like what do you do with it once you have it
0: fight for others right like you know one thing we didn't talk about that was a big experience for me and i guess because they didn't have a musical substrate i didn't find Mm -hmm. a way to 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 daylight it but maybe this is the right place to do that was from january to june of 2013 i was really involved in this effort to save like an open green space on the campus of the university of toronto the back campus and this was like uh, an effort that occupied a lot of my time and it was the place where I kind of learned I don't know learned to fight right I mean learn to try to build community online to build community in person to go in and see like people in the parliament to try to you know just to do everything you could to uh, build a framework to go to city hall like we did a lot of stuff right and I learned how how important it was to be powerful, so you could try to fight for other people, or for other things, or for a good cause. And like we didn't, we, we failed, right? We didn't keep them from like digging out the back campus and enclosing it with a fence and putting down all this astroturf, right? But I, I saw what what you could do um and and this possibility around community building and for me that was really transformative so even though there's not a musical hook for it uh that was like a big thing so when i think about now i'm trying to remember the lessons of that time to think about how do you harness the power that you 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 want to have well up inside you not for a self-serving end but to make things happen that are going to be good for other people and for the people who come after you like when you're gone
1: yeah ideally absolutely that seems like a great note to end things on yeah yeah
0: an aspirational note
1: absolutely looking to the future (laughs) like there are challenges and fights ahead yeah uh arm arm yourselves (laughs) yeah
0: and like i'm going back to the u.s right some people Mm -hmm. say to me like oh my god what a terrible time to go back to america why would you do that i feel really passionate about that i feel like that's exactly where i should be right the most patriotic thing you can do is offer dissent
1: exactly you're doing the opposite of uh if you don't like it, leave. And you're like, no, yeah. I don't. it's the yeah.
0: opposite. I go yeah. back and make trouble.
1: Exactly. This is the time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> A call to arms. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah,
0: thank you, Michael. It's been really fun.
1: Many thanks to Suzanne for sharing her life and music with us. You can hear Suzanne and Chris Puma do deep personal examinations of great works of literature on the Spouter Inn, which is also hosted on the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Suzanne has also co-edited and contributed an essay to How We Read, which is a collection of essays by a number of academics and creative types about reading, and that's available as a pay-what-you-will download. You can check the show notes for a link to that. This Is Your Mixtape as a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network, and now we have a Patreon where you can help support shows like this one. Go to patreon.com slash megaphonic, and for as little as $2 a month, you'll be able to hear bonus material and get access to a members-only Slack. Another way that you can help support this show is to write a review on the iTunes podcast store. And hey, that way is free! For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, you can check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 37. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing, while this show is also on Twitter at ThisIsYourMix. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. Bravely forward.